Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Black Women's Hour. Um, that might be the last time we say that. We are trying to find a new name. As usual, I have my trusty sidekick, Aisha. How's it going? Hi. All good, thank you. Enjoy how are you? Sunday. Yeah, how are you feeling? Really Celebrating good. this day where the, uh, the Lord goes again. Is it? Is it cold in Brighton? Yeah, it's sunny, Oh, okay. Um, so our guest this week, we have Joe Glenton. How are you doing? Good, thank you. Thanks for having me on. It's all right. Where are you this week? Where, what area are you allowed to say? I mean, uh, I'm in Republican East Greenwich, as you can tell by my Republican balaclava. I'm celebrating <laughs> the, uh, the Easter uprising with some friends who are from Derry. So. Is that your back? Are you Irish then? No, 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 they're just friends of mine. But I, I support that cause, obviously. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> and we have Dr. Louise Raw. I'm saying doctor in case there's any little uh, fascists watching because they do not like calling you doctor, do they? No, apart from they do like calling me Dr. Bitch, which is oh. the title given to me by Tommy Robinson's team, which I actually am quite pleased with because it makes me sound much cooler than I am. It's kind of my rap really name, cool. my rap name. It's like some Bond villain, Dr. Bitch. Yeah. I like that. I like that, Monica. Where are you today? What area are you in today? I'm in the southeast. Not going to say too much because those same people do look for my address quite conscientiously and quite frequently. So, yeah. Southeast. That's too. They do the exact same too. We're loving your background, by the way. Thank you very much. Yeah, Southall, 1979. Very uh, key moment in the history of uh, totally uncontroversial policing. <laughs> well, that's what we kind of got you guys on to talk about. Um, this episode, we're speaking about protest. I will explain. So I'm changing hair every week. Like we're trying to try different looks. I'm not sure about this one. I don't know how people deal with fringes. This one's really quite annoying. I don't it's like it. Cute, though. I've been watching Love and Hip Hop. So I've just discovered wigs and I'm just so into them. So this is what I'm on. So anyway, um, we are talking about protesting today. And uh, do you guys want to speak about sort of your backgrounds, Louise? Because you are a bit of an expert in protesting. Doing it and studying it. Yeah, I'm, I suppose, kind of a, I'm a social historian, but I do do a lot of stuff around protest. I'm sort of a protest historian, really. And I've been doing protests for a long time, too, since I was a, a youngster back in the Victorian era. So through that and through the trade union movement really I started to look at this kind of history and yeah it's it's difficult when you're a history bore it's always difficult not to start every sentence this reminds me of November 1887 in in London but at the moment it's really difficult not to because all the things are repeating all the things that we're seeing with protests and all the things that people then say after them as well oh yes it was the it was those demonstrators that started it definitely and but no, that's actually what we want from you because we did an episode following the uh, sewer report, which we, our episode was called the sewer report. I saw about, that. Um, a bit of a typo there. Right. <laughs> I know, it's such an accident. But like I had, to, we had a, a sociologist then and I said, with the way that the country is at the moment with this much unrest, this much unhappiness, I was saying, is there a time that you, um, it reminds you of? you know, that we can kind of relate to, because I don't know if you saw the documentary, um, the Black Power documentary um, that was on BBC Two last week. 
But Linton Kwesi Johnson said, you need to go back in time and look at what we did and learn from what we did and learn what, what went right and what went wrong and stuff. Mm -hmm. So therefore, that's kind of what we want to do. I think it's really mm -hmm. important because if you don't understand your history, then you're not going to understand your future. I think it was Biggie or Tupac that said that. Joe, <laughs> how are you? So I'm in, we got you on. I was really interested. Aisha was telling me about army protests, which I didn't even know were a thing. We yeah. thought you guys got into uniform and did what you were told. We never knew that there was any such thing. So yeah, I mean it's it's a, it's a strange um, it's a strange thing. I'm, I've got I've, I'm basically in the middle of referencing a book on exactly this on veterans who are on the left of politics and veterans who resist. Um, and there's, I think there's a general conception that everyone in the military does what they're told. And in fact, it's just not true. There's a long history of resistance um, in the military, um, kind of attempts at trade unionism, um, different forms of disobedience and dissent have always been a feature of uh, militaries. And there's, I suppose there's a couple of ways we could look at it, but um, I mean, I can't speak to the, to the old bill, obviously, but I suppose it's, it's protest as an insider, as someone who's inside the security state. Um, in its various forms. I and mean, now the police are very different from the from the army. Obviously, there are no like homeless coppers charities. They are they have a different relationship to capitalism and the state and so on. But um, I think there, there probably is something to be said about um, the potential for resistance inside the military. And there's a, there's a really long and very interesting history of this, which is kind of written out because most people on the right want to believe that everyone in the military is on the right. And to be honest, some people on the left kind of want to believe that as well. Um, and it's actually not the case. And there's a whole, there's a really interesting um, background of, of people saying, no, actually, fuck off, Sergeant. Fuck off, yeah. Lieutenant. Fuck off, Colonel. Um, I don't know if it's that we want to believe it, but I just think it's just obviously for reasons, you know, obvious reasons, the establishment don't want us to know of it. Yeah, so you've exactly. got army background. We're speaking about the police. Like I spoke a bit today on Twitter, which is always a mistake, about... So I've got a prison service background. I was a prison officer and stuff. And I think like they don't want people to know that they're actually decent forward thinking people in these institutions who are actually saying, hell no. And I was just saying today, like if you see all the police and stuff, people don't understand this is a certain section of the police. And I'm not saying by any means, I'm not defending, right? But what I was trying to compare it to is in the, prison service we had a um a group of people and they're from all different prisons and they're called the tornado group right and they will go so when you saw like years ago strange way show my age or any kind of prison uprising these are the people that gather and they put on all the you know they get suited and booted and they put this stuff on they're like hoo, hoo, hoo. these are like what we saw with these kind of and i'm trying to say there's an element in that that Instead of going, oh my God, these poor police, they're our friends and our neighbors. And we, you know, we all know, these guys don't pretend they don't want it. Do you understand? Because I wasn't going near Tornado. I was having nothing to do with it. So it's like, don't pretend that these guys are not coming out looking for a fight, you know, because there is that element. Aisha, I Very much of what we've heard about the TSG part of the police force, that they are, um, they are, chosen for that, they choose the role, they're literally picked for aggressiveness. And I actually heard um, lack of intellect and um, desire to follow orders and be aggressive. Yeah, and they said that in the Black Power documentary. Yeah. 
They were speaking about police having no O levels and stuff like that. And so these were teddy boys and NF that literally got in the uniform to just essentially go wild on black people. Louise, eh? Yeah, the same Louise. with the, the same with the SPG, who of course killed Blair Peach in 1979. I was saying that on Twitter as well. Today I was remembering a couple of years ago on the 40th anniversary meeting, two of his female friends who were there with him, who were attacked with him, Joe and Amanda. And they were saying exactly what you're saying, that the SPG came out like berserkers. They were probably drugged up, actually, it subsequently turns out. They were so hyped up. They were so excited. I mean, Blair Peach was going home. He's a teacher. He was going home after the demo. He wasn't looking for trouble, but they were 100%. And you can't get in their way and you can't stop them. And that's what's interesting, isn't it, about the demos we've seen recently, is that I know you've noticed it, um, Ava, that people have rushed on Twitter. There's sort of supposedly people of the left to say, oh, well, it's those protesters. It's all definitely, definitely 100% their fault even though i haven't seen the receipts yet it's definitely their fault and then we realize it isn't and they delete but it's not until a journalist you know a proper person the sort of person i might have to a dinner party that's a real person good grief the police were a bit rough with them then they realized don't they that even though they're a white person with nice shoes and nice clothes on those police are not going to stop if they're coming at you if you say excuse me officer i'm not that sort of chap and they really don't realize that most of the time they think they would get an exemption they would not get battered even actually there was also it wasn't just that was it it was um patsy what's the name like it didn't need to be a journalist it just had to be a white woman yeah and actually that yeah. was one of the most terrific things and we talk about it a lot but you know that was one of the most terrific things for us because actually that was at the beginning of it but actually they didn't stop did they because that was weeks ago and every bit of footage that I've seen about protests has shown the police reaching a point in the night or the afternoon in Manchester where they just I mean the way that they walked down the road in Manchester those people that were sitting in the middle of the road they looked like a gang they you know they looked like someone had done an uh, you know Alex Ferguson hairdryer treatment on them they had a hype man in the bloody changing rooms you know like come on go. like they they just didn't walk down like people who were about to engage in sort of conscientious policing it was like a gang that were hyped up and wanted to be violent. And that's well, something that's been really visible, I feel like. Well, these. they do. For years, the Metropolitan Police have had, like, been bullying, like, young black boys and stuff. And one of the things they say is, we are the biggest gang in London. Mm -hmm. So to, to, to uh, you know, pretend that these are innocent people, it's just, it's just, you know, they're the attack dogs for the establishment. That's what they are. And, you know, in the same way that you'll see these sort of shaven head, EGL types and stuff. They're the attack dogs for the conservatives. They're not gonna get their hands dirty. They are going to put these people out. And it's kind of like, I think we spoke a bit on this show at some point, all our shows end up interlinking. I wanna bring Joe in in a minute. Like it's from when they're young, do you know what I mean? Like if you look at the roles, like, so I used to go into Hackney schools and speak to them about stop and search. One time I went in, I was so shocked that the army were, and they were recruiting these kids from young and stuff. And, but then when I was at boarding school, it was uh, Sandhurst? Sandhurst, yes. Called, the, right? the training, right? Sandhurst is the, even from then, from back then, 
um, when people are children, they are dividing them into sort of the establishment and the attack dogs. And the cannon fodder. From boarding school who are not going, they don't go in the army to crawl on their hands and knees and, uh, you know what I mean? I, it's IEDs, IEDs are called coil, right? Whichever one it is, but they don't have rich children on their hands and knees crawling forward looking for these devices. Because the army, we think of it as being so rigid. I mean, most of us only know about it from films or kind of books or literature or, you know, so how can you, how can protest manifest itself in the army? What, how does it work? In, a, in excuse me, in any number of ways. I mean, the, the history of the British army um, is, is really closely connected with different kinds of political rad radicalism. So if you go all the way back to the new model army and Cromwell, whatever you think of him, Bit of, a, bit of a fucking dick in my opinion. And um, when you look at the New Model Army, it was centrally involved in kind of putting the, the, the basis of a democratic constitution forward. And I mean by that, the rank and file, the people at the bottom were like, we fought a war, we want a better settlement um, and we should have more democracy. And it was very limited. It was like more votes for men over 21. I mean, it was very limited. Then you follow that through and you look at rebellions in the First World War and mutinies. In fact, you can go earlier and look at um, massive protests. There, there were veterans at Peterloo, for example, who were killed uh, in the big protests up there against the various authoritarian laws of the time. And you could look at the, the, the settlement after the Second World All of those things involved serving soldiers, airmen, sailors, and air women, servicemen and service women, um, and, and veterans. Uh, and there is this, there's this long and quite rich history. I mean, generally speaking, if you're looking at like how people protest in the military, probably the most extreme example is a mutiny when you just stop marching, you say, we're not doing it this anymore. Um, and, uh, and there are many, many examples of that, but there are other ways as well. Sometimes, and I think increasingly it's the case that, like in my case, it's individual, but maybe a better case, a couple of years ago, I think last year, there was a young um, Anglo-Yemeni Lance Corporal in the army um, who uh, refused to soldier and uh, protested in Downing Street named uh, Ahmed Al-Batati. Um, and so, so there, there are kind of, ways in which this resistance expresses from the ranks in a very big way, mass mutinies and strikes effectively. And then there are kind of individual examples like me or Albertati of people just saying, no, I'm not doing this anymore. And then like in my case, I got locked up. In other cases, people just get booted out, but it's always there in any authoritarian organization. Um, that's always gonna be there. And, um, and, and you, you can look back at, there's a rich history of this in the, in the British military from literally the 1600s um, onwards. But as, as you were saying, it's, it's kind of airbrushed out because it doesn't really fit. The idea is, the idea we have the military that it's hyper-disciplined, it's kind of a unified team, which in a weird way is kind of the way the Tories like to think about Britain. We're a family, we're all on one side, there are no contradictions. We're all in this together. Exactly, I mean, that's exactly what it is. Whereas actually when you look closer, and that's what, I mean, that's what I'm trying to get out in my book, but it's particularly the job of historians, um, like Louise, you'll find that it's actually a case of um, massive kind of explosions and eruptions and conflicts, men and women, people from different kind of origins, people of different classes. Um, and that's the real story. And that's absolutely true in the military, I would say. I want to um, ask Louise and then sort of come back to you, Joe, on that. Like, I know you said it in the beginning, we said this is what we want to get from you. Is like we're seeing sort of uprisings in so many different cities at the moment. Does this remind you of anything? Because I think for me politically where we are where we are at the moment, 
I'm reminded of the winter of discontent, like where everyone's just had it with absolutely everything. Um, in terms of protesting and policing, can you draw any parallels from where, what we're seeing today? To yeah, I could probably draw far too many parallels, but certainly the 1970s is the living memory one where everything just kicked off all over the country because what what the establishment never quite learn is that yes you can oppress people and it's surprising how long you can oppress people for actually people will take an awful lot particularly when they can't afford to lose their jobs particularly when they're already quite terrorized and gaslit like i suppose the black community the asian community in particular you know ground down by the constant gaslighting and racism and oh just exhausted by the state that looks like you've won that looks like everybody's very compliant and then you see the far right kicking off and it looks like they're the only ones that have got a voice it looks like they are the popular voice doesn't it they're the ones out shouting in the street they're the ones gobbing off about lockdown and QAnon and 5G and God knows whatever else they're on about. But they're the minority. The rest of us, once we get to a certain point, it goes. And it's always done that. You go back to the Middle Ages, it's always done that. No matter how serious the strictures against you are, even in death penalty times, people can only take so much. There seems to be, I'm wary of calling it some kind of natural sense of justice, but there's something in us where if you go too far, we've got nothing to lose. We go from having too much to lose to do it, to you've pushed us so far now, our backs are up against the wall. What else can you do to us? And I imagine that's how the black community, the GRT community, the lesbian and gay and trans community must be feeling. What else can you do to us? You know, I'm going to this church, this, this conversion therapy church. I mean, for goodness sake, don't tell me he doesn't know. Of course he knows. The message that we're all being given is we're not concerned about you. We're not even talking to you, wokies. We're talking to the people behind you. We're talking to the right. We're the, they're the people we care about. So I would say the 70s, but you can go back to the 1880s as well, where it looks like a period, you know, glittering height of the... Victorian Empire we think everyone's very patriotic you can't move for flags right it's a bit like a Labour Party broadcaster or any politician 27 flags one up your ass just in case it was like that in the 1880s right the jingoism the flag waving was absolutely insane and so was the protest because again it gets to that point where some people are doing so bloody well they forget that the dockers who are starving, unpacking the wealth of empire are gonna go, oh, I can't afford any of this stuff. And in 1887, massive unemployment, a march, a peaceful march goes into Trafalgar Square, men, women, children, it's like a family day out. It was really common in those days on the left about issues in Ireland, home rule, but also unemployment. And there are bands playing, there are people singing, it's a jolly day, it's a friendly day. They're met by troops and police who attack them completely unprovoked. And a, a young man called Alfred Linnell gets trampled to death by a police horse. They deliberately ride at the crowd. They're, they're against a wall, they've got nowhere to go, literally. He's trampled again and again. They leave him to bleed out on the pavement. There's a police ambulance, they won't put him in it. Protesters have to go in and get that guy out. He dies in hospital. 
His wife had died, he was a widower. His kids were in the workhouse so that he could work. He was trying to get them out. So those kids became orphans and the press portrayed that as rioting. And they portrayed, you can see in the London Illustrated News, drawings of a man supposed to be Linnell looking like a total thug, you know, which means dark, looking very dark, because there's always a little bit of racism thrown in, even with white people, stubbly, with a baton attacking the police. He was not doing that. He was a clerk who was just watching. And that was the period when, again, they couldn't contain it. It just went. And in 1888, the Matchwin went on strike. That kicked off all over the country virtually a general strike on the docks the next year and it just it went all over the country it went to Ireland it went to Australia they get to a point and they always underestimate this the establishment they think we're riding roughshod over you and they don't expect that we'll get to that point and enough's enough. I want to bring come back to that in a little bit about a compliant media because we're seeing that same nonsense going on today I, but Aisha I thought you wanted to say something it was just actually when you brought up Starmer and the um, conversion therapy church, it was a black church, right? And I thought yeah, that was such yeah. a god, you think you're so clever. You know, you thought you were gonna get away with that and cause division there. And it's every time they just can't help themselves either. It was a massive PR fail on their part. They didn't realize, or they knew exactly what they were doing. Neither of them comes off well, does it? Exactly. And given that, given that Theresa May went to that church in 2017, that's a couple of years ago, the first thing you, if you Google Jesus House, that's the first thing you get is that she was dragged, rightly, for going to a homophobic church. Don't tell me no one in Keir Starmer's PR team can Google. I'm just thinking that's what, like, you had to find the worst black church. You can go oh to the Rainbow that's run by Reverend Jude McCauley. Yeah. You could go to one of these black progressive churches. You can go to Jarrell Robinson Brown. You could even go to like Kate Harwood, anything like that. You went there full of black people to piss us off and make us look stupid. But what I wanted to ask Joe was, um, one thing that we saw where um, in Egypt during the Arab Spring in um, Tahrir Square, um, protests. I think I said that right. Sorry, I tried my best. Um, but we saw um, them saying the people and the army are one hand, right? And anytime something happens here, uh, like the 2011 riots where you had Caitlin Moran going, send in the army, and you had all these blue tick centrist people going, send in the army. What do you think it would take here for our army to go, no, actually, we're not going to do it? I think it would take a lot more than than what we've seen, which isn't to say there would there would be dissent. I think it's it's a the Tahrir Square case is is uh, an example I use in um, in the book. Though it's important to understand Egypt has a has a conscript army, so they're forced to go. But it's interesting because um, there's there's a really good piece on this which I've quoted, and it talks about the Tahrir Square thing was a really good example of how armies aren't this big happy team, and it's an example of how. You have like the, the military in Egypt is very closely, I mean, it is the establishment. It owns factories. It runs the place mm. um, in a sense. And you have the generals who are kind of part of the capitalism, in effect, of, of the, the capitalism of the, of the nation. And you have this kind of eternally flip-flopping middle class who we all know about and lament, same as here. And then underneath that, because it's a conscript army, you have people who are just drawn from various poor communities. And the problem, I think, in Tahrir Square was that there was a risk at time that the army would look at the protesters and go, I know that bloke, and that's my mum, and that's my sister, and go, actually, 
And that was the point where they got rid of Mubarak. They decided that the army was too big to lose in, in a sense. Uh, but but those, those, I mean, it's hard. It's a different question in a professional military where people, economic conscription is still a thing. Most people, the army targets the lower orders. That's how I got into the army because I was poor and broke and, and, it, and it's a job. But some of those tensions do still exist in our own army. Most of the people who died in Afghanistan were from the ranks. Some officers died as well. But generally speaking, the army is, is structured around class. I mean, it's still the case. Um, where, at what stage we get to the point where a professional army was, will split, that's a different question to a conscript army. You know, but the bigger, I mean, Vietnam is another example where the army said, no, we're not fucking doing it anymore. We'd rather sit here and smoke weed and you can go and fight the, the Viet Cong, which was, I mean, resistance and strikes and killing their own officers was a big thing in Vietnam. It helped bring the war to a grind halt. But professional armies, and this is the big question for someone who's, who's radical and ex-military, is how do you get professional armies to do that? Um, but beyond that, what I think what's come out, and I, I know Luis was talking about, basically the culture war of the 1880s. And it's interesting to me, yesterday I was on the protest and I ended up, I went to the wrong end like an idiot. I thought it was Trafalgar Square. And I walked back down from Trafalgar to Parliament Square and round the cenotaph was a ring of steel, two police horses, loads of cops. And that was like 160 meters. I went back and figured out how far away it was from the protest. No one was interested in the cenotaph. No one was even looking at it. I noticed that yesterday's demo was very much a kind of crusty demo. People were smoking weed, people were, had their sound systems. And no one was even looking at the cenotaph, but the imagery, I think, is what's powerful. And we saw it on some earlier protests after the Clapham vigil, which I was at as well, just before it kicked off. Um, the, the idea of the police crowding around, pr protecting our national history, et cetera, et cetera, is really powerful. Even when the real narrative is that no one gives a shit about the cenotaph. No one was near it. But the idea that it has to be protected from who, unless a load of crusties can teleport from Parliament Square to halfway up Whitehall in an instant, I mean, I don't know. It's and the then, same with the Churchill statue. I'm like, yeah, what are you guys doing? Yeah, and, and the, the nearest threat to that was like a couple of like white people, you know, dreadlocks, white guys dancing around it, looking stoned. Like no one was interested. <laughs> no one's interested in the Churchill statue. And then halfway through the protest, they placed the cops Bobby on the beat with riot cops. Like no one was even paying any attention. But I think it's the, I think it's the imagery, and we saw that with a previous protest in Whitehall. It's the idea that these people are outside. They're not part of our society. The people fighting for justice in its various forms are kind of othered, I suppose it is the term you would use. And that's been repeated, I think, throughout these, this series of protests. Absolutely, and I kind of, sort of what Louise said, like, isn't it interesting when they attacked Iraq, their thing was, what is all this hard on for imagery and optics? Like the big image from Iraq was that statue of Saddam Hussein falling down. But then they're around this Churchill statue, like, what are you guys doing? But I do agree with you. Um, I'm going to bring Aisha in in a minute about the division, because you just sort of reminded me of something um, where you're talking about Egypt saying, hey, I know that guy over there, because they don't do it anymore because they don't want to pay out the money. But in the prison service, what they used to do was cross recruiting. So we would have a lot of officers in like the London jails who are from up north. And then they would send up people from London up north so that you can't go, hey, I went to school with that guy. That guy's all right. That's my, it's all about division, isn't it? So Aisha. 
I was just going to say, what is it about statues? Isn't it the same thing about skyscrapers? They're all phallic. They're going to cut down his dick, cut off his dick, protect my dick. I mean, fucking hell. <laughs> you know, like, it's I don't, that basic because we are talking about men. Know, it really is because yeah. someone said on Twitter, like they had the whole um, Winston Churchill statue and someone's like, it's not going to shag you. Like, get over <laughs> it. Just get away from the fucking statue, you weirdos. It is the crazy. flag might if you're really lucky. <laughs> really Louis, there's a his oh, go on, Joe. Sorry. I was just going to say, um, I, I, I realised that you the really iconic vandalisation of Winston Churchill's statue when he has a group, someone cut some turf and made it a green yeah. mohican. That guy was an ex-Royal Marine, which really, like, to me, really, really interested. Who was yeah. doing it as a free speech process. In two, the guy got a month in prison in 2000. So the, this weird conflation of the military and the culture war is really strange to me, because, like, literally, the guy who trolled Churchill the most was an ex-soldier. <laughs> <laughs> Oh God, Louise, have you got um, any examples of the military uprising here, or what do you think it would take? If you could, what what do you think we need to get to for the army not to be something that we're threatened with here, where they might be too scared to call the army in? Well, yeah, Joe's probably the expert on that more than I am, but I think at the moment what's surprising is they seem to have on the whole, the army and the police on side. And I think I thought, because we know the establishment has always used the police as their private army, you know, private boot boys of the establishment. But when Theresa May started fucking off the police, I think we sort of thought, oh, this is interesting, because they don't usually do that. They normally pat the police on the head just enough, don't they, to keep them on side. We thought we're gonna see some change here because the police, and she's offending the police, she was really offensive to them, wasn't she, at a police conference when she was running through the cornfields or something. But I thought that would really bring a change, but it hasn't. It doesn't seem to have done. And I think it's because, well, Prissy's their girl, isn't she, really? And she's saying to them, lads, you can do what you want. And that's what they wanted to hear, isn't it? Not everyone, but some people in the police who would look back to the 70s where people like this gentleman behind me, you know, skulls just got cracked left and right, didn't they? The racism in the police force was astonishing. Not that it ever hasn't been, but it was more blatant. It was fully, fully blatant in the 1970s, wasn't it? And I think we have to accept that for some people, those were kind of glory days. And they're like, yeah, you know, like we see the far right thinking they're in heaven because we're getting back to the good old days where you can say the N words. That's is that your ambition in life? Is that all you've ever wanted from your life is to be able to insult people again in a more open way? My God, what limited, you know, what limited dreams you have. But I think for some in the police, yeah, they're really feeling their oats again, aren't they? They're feeling yeah. really backed up. Patel has just said. Go out on crackheads, lads. Yeah, I, I phrased the question wrong, actually. It was kind of like the police I meant to ask you about, but you know, it's Easter and vodka. But um, <laughs> no, what I wanted, to, like we had um, Tasneem uh, Kunji on, who is a, a lawyer um, of the- And Halal Heartthrob, lest we forget. Yes, I know him. I've heard, I've I've uh, I've met him. Yes, he's great, and I saw his door opening cat as well on the episode. Yeah, really impressive as well. <laughs> <laughs> no, we've had him on a couple of times. We're going to have him on again. Yeah, a halal heartthrob. But one of the points that he made, which I found interesting, wanted to ask you about, was um, what Margaret Thatcher did when she was going after the miners. Was she 
boosted the police, but with numbers and stuff. At the moment, if you've ever tried to report anything to the police, you can't. Like, you'll speak to them, there's only two on duty. There are no police. So I think pretty much everything, everybody is out on the streets right now. I mean, I think if people had sense, they'd all protest at once in every single city. Because yeah. as they were doing in Bristol, they were sending other police forces in. If everybody's out in ev every area, what well, they are really, really sort of, you know, lacking in numbers at the moment. So do you think like, not wanting to give her any ideas, can the police sustain this though? Because they don't have the numbers to, to sustain it really, do they? I think it's really difficult to have slashed them to the bone the way that they have, to have cut their pay as well, the way that they have. You know, we all know some people that are outside London, you've got about six local cops in, for three towns and villages. And if they're all dealing with a fight down the and whatever then you can do whatever you want in the rest of the area because there's literally no police so it's going to be interesting I don't think that they can keep this up I really don't and that's the difference between the 70s and yeah Thatcher ideologically brought in the police to break the people to break the unions which of course she hated started with the most powerful union it had nothing to do with mines or mining whatsoever it was an all-out offensive on on she you know if she could have called them the woke if that term had been around then I'm sure she would have done but it's going to be interesting to see whether a completely depleted police force can keep up this level of and it's not sort of relaxing sitting behind a desk policing is it it's exhausting out on the streets I, won't, I imagine battering people is quite tiring I expect your baton hand gets a bit you might get a bit of RSI it's pretty intensive so how long can they keep it up? We see what they used to do in the 1880s, they had a tremendous idea and it worked really well. They would sign up special constables. So when they were planning to batter people a bit, like in 1887, when they were planning to, to batter the unemployed. And again, in, in 89, when they were planning to attack the dock strike processions, which were huge, you'd have hundreds and thousands of people, they'd sign up any Tom Dick or sort of Tommy Robinson, you know, who wanted to come along, they'd give them a few quid, they'd give them a bat. And can you imagine how much these lads loved it? Loved it. They had a little armband, they could swing their baton, but we can't, but it was, there was a one guy who talked about that and the dock strike and he looked back on it when he was older and said, God, I was an idiot. But he looked back and said, I have been made to think that by being given this little bit of power, I was superior. These dockers, these unemployed people were just the great unwashed. They weren't real. They weren't real to me. And I felt so excited. Now, like what we were saying about the police being hyped up, I was so excited. I couldn't wait to crack a few heads. I couldn't wait to swing my little cosh at people. But we haven't got that now. That's what we've done in the past when we've had civil unrest, but we can't do that now. Unless, oh, I don't want Pretty Patel to hear this. She's going to start doing it, isn't she? We're going to get Britain first, signing up. <laughs> Golding's going to come and get stuck in a revolving door. Oh. I have a lack of sympathy for that, to be honest. That, you know, that guy going, oh, I was so excited and stuff. I think it's the measure of you. When you put, you, you know, they say you can tell what someone is when you put them in uniform. Mm. I had no desire to beat up any inmates, had no desire to be bullying anybody or preventing them from it. I just didn't have the energy for that kind of thing. So I think you do definitely. I mean, if you look at the Stanford experiment, where mm. they 
divided these and just put some in uniform. So like, you people, are, you were always crazy. The uniform just brought the crazy yeah. out. Yeah. So I, I look, always just look at Joe, for instance, who was in the army and look at his politics yeah. and stuff now. We can't turn around, you know what I mean? I think they, yeah, go Louise, sorry. Yeah, I'm, sorry, I was just gonna say, I've seen exactly, exactly that same kind of excitement. You can almost smell it from the far right when they're outnumbering us as anti-fascists and there aren't any police around. I've had a few occasions of that. It's exactly the same excitement, you know? It's almost sexual. It's really bizarre. It's not normal. And fortunately, most people don't feel like that. But that excitement that you see in elements of the police, it's exactly the same thing. Yeah, it's, it's very bizarre. It's weird. Aisha? I was just going to say, it's, I find it really interesting that every time you see a clip of police officers talking to protesters or black people, their tone of voice is universally the same. And it's similar to the fascists that you talk about. They always have this slightly smug, you know, calling them lads, calling this, and they all sound exactly the same. And I think there's, you know, I'm sure a sociologist could have a field day with it, but there is a, exactly like Ava said, there's somebody who's chosen to do that role and there's something they're getting out of it. And I think that's something that you can't really ignore. And when you said about the, the um, people they hired in, I'm just like, yeah, but that's just the police force. You're just describing the police force to me. Like those people have chosen it, you're paying them to do it. You're just describing them. And it, and it feels odd to even think that there's a difference really. I was going to ask Joe, literally, um, at what point, like, do most people become disillusioned with the army? I mean, when, you, like, when I was working in prison service, the amount of, I mean, it's all free for all now. It's peeing, getting vodka, bringing kids. <laughs> Have you sent him with the glass to refill your, you? I was muted. No one had to say anything. You could have just ignored him. He's gone to get me a top up. <laughs> I saw that. Um... <laughs> Like, how do people keep their spirits up anyway in the army? Because like, do they think about what happens afterwards? Because when I was in the prison service, we had a lot of ex-army guys in, right. as inmates, as inmates. And the homelessness as well for ex-army people is off the scale and there's just no aftercare. And isn't it sort of like a whole juxtaposition where it's like, our oh, boys, our oh, boys, our oh, boys. And then they come back and you're like pissed. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, it's weird. I, I generally think morale lasts about fucking 25 minutes, to be honest. Like once, once you're in, once you've got past the glossy magazines and the recruiters spill and things change, some people love it and those people are deeply strange. <laughs> most people, most people, once you're in, you start to realise and a lot of the kind of ideological stuff falls away. Um, but what, and, and this, is, this is a problem, and we see it in the States. I noticed in the Capitol Hill attack, like 20% of the people being prosecuted over the Capitol Hill attack in America are veterans. And yeah. we see something similar here. You can come out and the, the experience of war and what goes with the military, institutional racism, um, sexism, deep misogyny, all the problems in the military, it can spin you a number of different ways. Some people come out and they go all the way left and they become radicals. And those are kind of my people who I'm trying to engage with and, and write about at the moment. Other people, and it's very often the case, develop these, these toxic stab-in-the-back theories where the people who've betrayed them are gay people, trans people, black people, effete liberal politicians, so on, and they go all the way the other way, and it's very often the case. And I know that I mean, it's interesting to me because I, I know people who've, who are veterans who've been in prison, but also who have been prison guards who 
who are veterans. And I also noticed that the TSG, for example, attracts a lot of veterans. I noticed that the, um, the firearms section, including the, the man who's currently charged with the murder of Sarah Everard, veteran. Um, so it can go completely the other way without wanting to libel anyone. <laughs> um, and a lot of people come out and they become deeply embittered and they kind of internalize, internalize the, the idea of the hard done by Tommy Atkins hero. Um, and when you look historically, it's really, you look in Italy, Mussolini veteran, Hitler uh, veteran, all the fascist movements of Europe of the 30s involved centrally, ex-military people. And it's all about this stab in the back theory. And th there is a degree of that today. And I suppose as a non-historian, <laughs> there are historians who could speak to these forces more clearly than me, but there is a long history of veterans being driven into the arms of the far right, because the far right will go, no, you are a hero. No, you have been betrayed. You absolutely have been betrayed. Come with us. We've got all the flags you can shag. Join us. <laughs> that, that said, there's another narrative, which is that, you know, veterans also shoot their officers and rip their officers insignia off and go back and they join, they join the far left. Um, so this, there's this idea of kind of a civil war between between different sections of people who've been trained to fight. Um, yeah. And there's many, many a good radical and revolutionary in the history of this country who learned how to shoot straight in the army and became a part of progressive movements as well. But it's a, it's a massive collision of forces. Yeah, I think that we do have that example. Like I don't go on demos anymore, but I used to go on demos like back in the day. 2011, when I was living in Walthamstow with the EDL marching through, I'm sure that's where we first crossed paths, uh, Louise, and sort of heard of each other and stuff and saw each other on those types of things. But there definitely is something in what you're saying. And I think it does go down back to the Stanford experiment. And that is your, just your personality type. Like there's some people who can be drawn into that and some people who can't, because I know a lot of the guys who were in the UAF who were on those demonstrations were ex-football hooligans. And um, they will say, oh, I know that guy from back in the football matches. And the other guys, you know, the far right, they were some ex-football hooligans as well. And I, when I was looking at the police yesterday, I thought, God, you're football hooligans. That's exactly what, do you know what I mean? I think it is, Louise, you were going to jump in and say something as well. Yeah, it's that kind of machismo, isn't it? It's that wanting to be the top boy and all the aggro that goes with it. But yeah, I was going to talk about some of my favourite anti-fascists. It just reminded me what Joe was saying, who were the 43 group who came back from World War Two, and their parents had to tell them, oh, great to see you, son. You know, lots of hugs and kisses, and it's wonderful that you're back. And then I remember one of them saying... I knew there was something wrong because I could see this sort of shadow in my dad's eyes and he had to tell me the fascists were back and I couldn't believe it. Mosley is marching again. Like we kind of thought World War II had sort of settled that whole fascism, is it good or bad thing? But here they are again in our streets. So they just went out and sorted them and they could fight. And they, they always said, you know, we don't walk at the fascists, we run at them. And Morris Beckman, who was such a gentleman, and he apparently said, well, it's very unfortunate, but unfortunately, yes, this is what we have to do. We do have to just absolutely smash the bastards, you know, <laughs> and just get rid of them. And uh, yeah, so exactly that. People who'd been in the military knew how to fight. And the guy who founded the Home Guard, actually, um, Tom Winterham, was a Spanish Civil War veteran. 
and actually turned the home guard from what we think of on dad's army to this really elite guerrilla fighting force at which point of course the establishment came and took it off him and kicked him out and wrote him out of history because he was a commie but yeah it's it's so interesting isn't it what veterans will do where they go what i want to ask is um how do we go forward in the digital age? Because it's okay with um, Linton Kwesi Johnson saying, you've got to look at what we did and go, well, they didn't yeah. have smartphones then. They didn't have facial recognition then. They didn't have like, you know, ways to identify you from your freaking earlobe. Like, how can we do this and be successful in the modern age? Hmm. Yeah, it's going to be incredibly difficult because we're really up against it. But then every age of sort of street fighters has been, has had its problems, has had its things it's got to overcome. And I suppose we're just going to have to work around it. I do think there's an awful lot that you can learn from black protest movements. I think he's right about that. I learned a lot, although I'd been, you know, a sort of lefty, lefty for hire, you know, all round firebrand and troublemaker since I was young. It wasn't till my friend Roger Sylvester was killed by the Met Police. Oh, sorry. In close proximity, I think I have to say, for legal reasons, to the Metropolitan Police. And I joined his family campaign that I consider my real education in how to be an activist began from people who just had to do this thing all the bloody time, who would just go in Tottenham, okay, another person dead, another march to the police station, here's how we do it. We have to absolutely all be united. We have to make sure we haven't got white protesters over here, black protesters over here. We've all got to be in it together and learn from each other. How we get around the new tactics, how we get around this bill, if this bill gets in, which let's face it, they've got a majority, they've got a fuck you majority, haven't they? It's gonna pass. And it's horrendous, isn't it? It's horrendous. We're gonna have, we've already got a, a replacement of that unit that they had with the undercover cop Mark Kennedy, the civil disorder unit or whatever it was. We just discovered they've actually reintroduced that and they're already, already spying on demonstrators. They're gonna give spy cops more powers to break the law, like they weren't doing that anyway. And if this bill passes, this bloody 307 page nightmare of a draconian bill, and you can, as one person, one person with a placard, if you piss off a police officer, you can go down for it and get a massive fine. Exactly. Like it's to be crazy. Yeah, I didn't know you knew the Sylvester family. That really, mm -hmm. really, I don't know them. I met the mum and dad um, when I used to go on demonstrations like um, with Marcia Rigg when she used to hold all these things. And I remember seeing them and they had the photo of him. And when I wrote that book, Pour on Water, it was about police killings and stuff like that. It was actually something they had said to me. And I don't know why, I just felt like really upset. But I remember the mum saying like, we were gonna go back to Dominica. You can see I've got my Dominican flag back there. And uh, but we're gonna go back when we get justice for our son. And I remember just thinking then you're not going back. No. And they didn't. They they fought for seven years. And of course, I don't need to tell you, Ava, it's exhausting. You don't get to grieve. You have to hit the ground running campaign. And we used to meet in Roger's bedroom. You know, I mean, God, it was just heartbreaking. His mum, what she had to see, what she told me on the day of his funeral about having to, he'd been through numerous autopsies, let's just say, and she wanted to dress him in his suit. And the personal pain, the agony of that, and trying to fight to get justice, which would exhaust a person who wasn't grieving who wasn't I, yeah, I think, and um, they went for seven years didn't they they got an unlawful killing verdict the police appealed the met appealed it was overturned and in the end they had to say 
we can't, for the sake of our family, we can't do it anymore. We're going to have to step back and get on with our life and grieve Roger. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I've, I've been there, so I understand. Yeah. Completely. yeah. I do think that um, at this moment, like I was speaking to Taz the other day and we were talking about, and he was going, okay, about, um, you know, if there's going to be an uprising or a revolution, whatever, and we were talking about it in terms of race, I said it is not going to be in terms of race. That's going to be the problem. There is no way now with the amount of black and brown Tories that we have and with the amount of black and brown people who are just acting like they've lost their minds, um, I think it's literally going to be a revolution of the heart and the mind and the conscience. Like, what do you think? Do, are you a forward-thinking person or are you not? Because, I mean, who's causing most of the problems in this country right now? It's pretty Patel. Yeah. She's causing unrest and it's like... Every, I know, every show I say I don't want to talk about her, but we have to. It's she's her a, fault. She makes us do it. By this stuff. She's just like, it's like she's getting off on this stuff. It's absolutely. It is. It's like what we were talking about, these testosterone-filled males. I don't know if it's because she's short and short people, sorry, sorry, Louise, but, you know, <laughs> like they manifest their anger in different ways. And Louise does hers with protesting. Prissy Patel does hers by causing literal unrest and where are we going where is she going with this nonsense you know where is she actually going with it because it's like she's happy to be this face and that's why you can't say it's along color lines this is a brown woman louise yeah i am five foot two i want to defend the honor i think ava said something on twitter like why would you be five foot two why have you no ambition why would you do that <laughs> My son thought that was the funniest thing. My five foot ten, fourteen year old son who mocks me all the time. So thank I'm you. I'm dreading You're those days, Louise. My <laughs> son is like nearly nine, and I am dreading the days when I am like, and another thing. Yeah, we ready to go with that. Now. You need to put the boot in now. Speaking of Pretty yeah. Patel, you try need to, to break use him the early doors before they grow. <laughs> try to break him now because I have to stand on yes. the sofa sometimes to try to let But I think we're in a position that the actually the suffragettes were in in 1910 and people think suffragettes posh white pankhurst but there were asian suffragettes disabled suffragettes lesbian suffragettes um working class lots and lots of working class suffragettes and for them going to prison was a nightmare so before they ever got militant the governments bound them all over just for heckling for the mildest things and said we'll bind you over to keep the peace for a year which meant they thought everyone has to stop protesting now because they don't want to go to prison. These are working class women with kids. They cannot do it. There's no childcare. They can't go to prison. And there was a suffragette called Adelaide Knight, who I love, working class East End suffragette with a black husband who was the most amazing. I think their couple goes, these two. He's not only dropped their gorgeous um, Donald Adolphus Brown, but he took her surname when he married her in 1894. And she was faced with exactly that, exactly what we'll be faced with with this bill. She had to come home. She was a disabled woman and a mum of two young kids. And she had to come home and say what to her husband, what can we do if I give in to this intimidation? That's it. That's the end of this movement. We're done. But oh, am I well enough to go to prison? What are you going to do about the kids? You've got to work. And he said to her, my dearest mama, because when the kids were around, he was called a mama, we have faced every trial that has been put to us, because there's a mixed race couple in London, you can imagine. And we will not fail now that we have really been put to the test. He supported her completely. Um, it, most amazing man. But she had to go to prison. 
a thousand, over a thousand suffragettes went to prison. And of course, we know they were force fed. But then, and this is what we're looking at, I think now, when that didn't work, Winston Churchill, yay, authorised the police to beat seven shades of shit out of the suffragettes, to sexually assault them um, in 1913 on Black Friday. Their clothes were ripped. We saw that woman being stripped in Manchester. They ripped their clothes, they exposed their breasts, attacked their breasts, threw them half naked to these groups of thuggish men, said, do what you want with them. Women were sexually assaulted and beaten. You know, two women died within days of the protest. So we're not looking I'm not being very as optimistic as I hope to be there, really. Um, <clears throat> so we're looking at really tough times, but you, they teach us, I suppose, as do so many other protest movements, you cannot give in to intimidation from the state or you're done. You're just done. Absolutely. But I know it says like, it sounds like you're being pessimistic, but it's not. It's like we're saying, you've got to look at the past. You've got to learn some lessons from it. Mm. And Joe, I wanted to ask you, what could people, what could laymen do? in order to support people in the army. And I know that sounds like a not a very left-wing position and stuff, but like you said, I mean, they come out, they're imprisoned. They have mental health issues. People don't care about them. And we know that these are the people that they will try and turn on us. So what can we do to kind of try and build some solidarity with these guys to make them understand, like, we know that you were recruited at school. We know that you're, you know, you're shoved out there and Prince Harry has a bodyguard and you guys are the ones calling on the ground, you know, and you could be blown up at any minute. What can we do to make sure that they, you know, to, to consolidate the struggles, basically? It's a, I mean, it, it's a problem. It's um, the, the military and veterans, I think, for some of the left, some of the left are a blind spot. If you're working class and on the left, the military option looms very large. If you're not, it doesn't. So I think generally, kind of, if you're from a working class background, you understand the drivers. Uh, that there's, it's important to get away from a kind of essentialism that everyone who joins is evil. Most people join for money, just like I did, for opportunity. So it's important that I think that kind of a materialist look of why people join is, is the starting point. But the best route, really, if you want to involve those people, is through veterans. Like veterans have a, have a way in, and there is a kind of burgeoning veterans left vet, group of left veterans. I wouldn't call it a movement quite yet, but there are a lot of us, and I think. Those people do have a lot to offer. Um, but uh, equally as important, a lot of the people that I know who are ex-military are just involved. Loads of the guys I know were on the BLM protests. Mm -hmm. Loads of the guys I know and women are in renters' unions, are in trade unions, were involved in the Labour Party, were involved in the radical versions of Scottish independence, are Irish Republicans. And so they're, they're already kind of there. But really, I think it's just we need to reinterpret um, the idea that everyone in the military is a fascist. If anyone was fascist, you'd fuck them off the same way. So if a veteran turns up and happens to be far right, you'd treat them in the same way. But lots of people aren't. And lots of people are from working class backgrounds and share our material interests. Um, and it's really about kind of reframing how we think about the military. It's not to say the military, the military is a hyper-conservative organisation. Not everyone in it is. Uh, there's still people with potential. Um, I suppose is my argument. And so we have to engage on that basis because there's a, a great grand historical tradition of soldiers, sailors and airmen kicking off, um, overthrowing, <laughs> overthrowing their commanders and causing all kinds of trouble for the British establishment. They don't just belong to them. It, it's a, the military is a contested space, I suppose is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I think um, America are a bit ahead of us when it comes to that, because in America, 
they will understand black and brown people had no choice but to be in the military. And there is that more sympathy, but I guess, you know, the different history and stuff allows them to sort of understand and notice that. Louise, I'm going to say before we go, because we're not going to, we're trying to keep to an hour <laughs> at this point. So um, Aisha, did you want to jump in and say, I thought you had your hand up to say something? Um, I am not quite middle-aged, but I have forgotten it. So let's just move on. You're middle-aged, stop lying. <laughs> oh, stop, Joe. Joe is five old months <laughs> younger than me. And he thinks he's a spring chicken. I've got less gray hair than you, Joe. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Louise. You've written a book, right, Louise? I have, yeah. Louise. I've written a book. In the comments and stuff, but just tell people what your book was about, where they can get it. So Striking a Light, available from all good bookshops, but do get it from places like Bookmarks, um, up near the British uh, Museum, but also online or Newman Books. So lots of good independents, Housemans, loads of good independent books out there. Striking a Light, which is a hilarious pun because it's about match women. Do you see what I did there? Who went on strike in 1888. But that's about that whole thing, really, about the fact that working class people started realising who was on whose side? And that's everything we've been talking about today, really, isn't it? What Abba said about a revolution of the heart. It's realizing who is really on your side, no matter what they tell you, no matter who's waving the flag. And the match women just kicked off, really, in the East End of 1888. They were supposed to be the most powerless, the most powerless, absolute scum of the earth, working class, ew, women, yuck, um, industrial working women in a factory, Irish, that's practically black to the Victorians, which is obviously awful. Um, and yet they changed the world with their strike. They kind of began the modern trade union movement and Jeremy Corbyn acknowledged it as the start of the Labour Party, really. But when I came to that book, that wasn't the narrative. The narrative was absolutely not. These were working class Irish uneducated girls. They probably went on strike by mistake. I expect a middle class person made them do it. We just about accept the dock strike because at least that was men. It's a shame it was working class people. So I was, I, I saw kind of the importance to young girls, particularly of that story. And it's amazing going into schools because they were from migrant backgrounds, imagine from Irish backgrounds, going into schools and telling that story to young Muslim girls, young black girls, and seeing them kind of sitting up in their chairs a little bit straighter, thinking, yes, young teenage girls who were completely written off as powerless actually change the world well we will um put a link to where to get your book in the comments afterwards so people please buy louise's book and it's what you said i mean we had jeremy corbyn for a little while we don't have an opposition so i think it's really important to uh learn from these movements and basically empower yourselves because if you're waiting for keir starmer you're going to be waiting a long time uh aisha before we go i was just um just uh tag on to what Louise said, just talking about the protest now, we have so many young people protesting and the age of the protesters, they're so young. I saw a tweet yesterday, uh, the person who kicked off the speeches in Brighton was 15. I just thought, yes, because you know what? That is probably the most hopeful thing that you'll ever hear me say on the show, because normally I'm literally the doomsayer. <laughs> and I have no hope in anyone or anything, but genuinely that actually filled my heart with a little bit of joy. I thought, yes. You know what, if the kids are even, and they are better than us, they're so much better. One more question, sorry, is anyone thinking of Northern Independence Party? Just while we're talking about things that aren't Labour anymore. I 
you know, just think it's funny. They're upsetting ladies, so it's funny. <laughs> That's it. The whippet is really upsetting people. Yeah, the whippet. <laughs> the whippet's causing a lot of annoyance. I think the whippet might be anti-Semitic. <laughs> think... Wait, what was that, Joe? I was going to say, I think, I think it's funny because they're ba I know a couple of the guys are ex-military, ex-army guys um, uh, who are involved in it, who are Geordies and Scousers and so on, proper like, working class people. Um, and they, uh, I like the fact they've, basically the whip it and all that stuff, they're basically, you know, the whole Labour, like, authenticratic, like, we're the real North, nobody drinks cappuccino in the fucking North. That, I like the way that Nip have taken that and just totally confounded Labour these kind of fake authenticratic people are completely like, oh, you know, just, just dumbstruck by the fact that, because that whole thing is about taking the piss out of labor. That's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. And they are funny. Like centrists can never be funny. They just, true. they have shit banter and <laughs> real people have good banter. And that, I don't know where it will go, but I like the, the disruptive element of the Northern Independence Party. And I think it probably says something about the dell of labor. When I look at it, I'm like, not the Labour Party, not the Labour movement, the Labour Party, kind of, it's death throes with Corbynism. And now we have to look for something else. And it has to be bottom up, which I don't think Corbynism was. To agree it could have been or should have been. Um, and I think NIP is like a, NIP is a sign of that. And it's, we can take it as something healthy as well as, uh, you know, uh, a sign of decay in Labour. Yeah, definitely. Joe, want to ask you before we go about, you've written one book already, you're working on the second one, just tell us where we can get your book and tell us what your second book's about. Um, it's called Veteranhood, Rage and Hope in Ex-Military Britain. Um, it will be all good bookshops and also Waterstones. We lapped for maximum um, trolling factor. We're looking to release it uh, on Remembrance Week <laughs> just to really, really annoy fascists in berets and blazers and medals. Um, uh, so yeah, yeah, I, I've basically got to go. I was supposed to be referencing this weekend, completely ignored it and got drunk instead. But uh, yeah, I should submit very soon and it should be out in November. Excellent, excellent. And your original book, just send us the details. We'll put it in our comments section so people know where to buy that. Guys, I'm gonna ask you to stay on. We are gonna say goodbye to our audience, but you guys need to stay on because we want to do our 10 questions for our patrons which we will, uh, it's a, a feature that we, we've just started. So um, to all our viewers, thank you very much for joining us again. On our next show, we will have Dr. Sean Sobers and Dr. Adam Elliott Cooper. And Adam Elliott Cooper has just got a book out um, about black people and policing uh, in this country. And Dr. Sean Sobers is from Bristol. And we're gonna be asking him, why does Bristol kick off first? <laughs> Always, always, always. Like, we need to get some Bristol spirit. Um, all right, then, guys, thank you very much. And uh, if you have got a new uh, any ideas for a new name for this show, please submit them. We're running a competition where you have the chance to win nothing. Okay, guys, <laughs> we'll see you on the next show. Thank you. Bye. Say bye, everyone. Bye. 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 <laughs>